sometimes the church can be its own worst enemy, can't it? You hear people talking about the church. Perhaps you do if you keep your ear open to the climate of the culture in which we live. The church has lost friends in some corners because of its very nature. I mean, it's inevitable that it would happen. It happens across denominational lines. It really happens across religious lines as well. Religion has this tendency to complicate itself with all kinds of rules. I think that John Wesley's, having grown up in the Anglican church, he saw this happening. In fact, the rules became so pronounced that it had a way of robbing the people of the very faith that they wished to profess. He would see them as they gathered on Sundays. Uh, not all of them gathered on Sundays, but the ones that did fill the pews or half fill the pews were themselves sometimes only half present. There was this emptiness to what he saw. It's interesting that he, being a priest in the Anglican church, did not just hightail and run because that's not exactly what he had in mind for his life and for the life of others that he wished to associate. He had this calling, this missionary calling, this driving force within himself to help others understand the passion that he felt in his own heart. He loved to publish, not because he wanted to be known, nor because he wanted to make money, although he did both of those things through his publishing. He published pamphlets for a pittance. Even the poorest, it seems, were able to get off a half pence to afford a pamphlet that he had for sale. It just was to cover the cost of the printing and maybe just a little above that. But these pamphlets were so popular that they made him one of the wealthiest men in England. They, he would have been if he had not given it away across his years. These pamphlets were fascinating because they spoke to the simplicity of what was on his heart. John Wesley published a pamphlet in 1742 that he entitled The Character of a Methodist, and he hoped and prayed that the Methodist would read it, but that others who wondered about this new fledgling renewal movement would also understand what was going on. He said, a Methodist is one, and then quoting from Romans chapter 5, he said, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Ghost given to him. He went on, a Methodist is one who, and quoting from Mark 12, one who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. A Methodist is one, he went on, quoting from Psalm 73, who has God as the joy of his heart and desire of his soul, constantly crying out, who have I in heaven but this? 
Methodists are happy in God. Smile at me when I say that. <laughs> Let me know you're Methodists here gathered in this place. Methodists are happy in God, rejoicing in forgiveness. Methodists give thanks in all things, trusting God even in the midst of distressing, most distressing times. Methodists pray without ceasing. Methodists love God and neighbor. Methodists avoid evil. Methodists do good to all, neighbors and strangers, friends and enemies. It sounds like to be a Methodist is just to be a Christian, right? All of this is straight out of the Scripture. But his concern was that somehow that gets lost in the church. How could that get lost? How could this kernel of truth get lost? And yet it does. By virtue of the church's wish to love God in the right way. This is the bane of our existence. We want to get it right. And so in our attention to the details, we do ourselves harm and others in the process. His concern, Wesley's concern, was that we remember that this is a Holy Spirit-driven thing. That the very nature of who Christ is is about a renewal movement that claims us by the heart and transforms our spirits. You see, Paul's concern for the churches of Galatia was very similar to Wesley's concern in his day for the Anglican church and the call for Methodists to be that renewal movement. Paul's concern for the churches of Galatia was not so much that they weren't being Christian enough, this is strange to say, but that they were being too Christian. Have you read Galatians? Do you understand what the problem was there? Paul says in this first chapter of Galatians, I'm astonished that you're so quick that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What is that gospel? It wasn't that they were abandoning their faith. It's that some were enticing them to believe that if you don't do it, if you're not Christian in this way, then you're not Christian. Now that'll preach these days. If you're not Christian in this way, then you're not Christian. How many times have you heard someone say around here, we, we've, we've always done it that way? Has anyone ever said that here? We've always done it that way. As if that's a justification. I tell you, it becomes a curse if you're not careful. It becomes a curse to carry on the way things ought to be. 
Wesley, if he were here today, he would call to us, lovingly call to us. He might get a few words of chastisement in there, but he would lovingly call to us, asking that we remember the freedom that we receive in Christ to be his people. The problem at Galatia with the churches there was that they were being told that certain ceremonies, certain legalities had to be in place for things to be right. It's interesting that Paul says to them in the 13th verse of this chapter that Regina read for us this morning, in the 13th verse he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Now, there's nothing new about that. That was Paul's message to them from the beginning. He was saying to these, these who were not Christian, whom he had invited to be followers of Christ, he was saying to them the same thing that he had said in the beginning. Was it because that they had left the faith? No. He was just reminding them what he was about and what they were about. He said, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, angers, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you. He didn't say, I'm warning you. He said, I'm warning you. He loved these churches. These were his children, Christ's children, but his children too. He said, I'm warning you. As I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know this. And they knew it. They were living in accordance with that grace. But they were in danger of slipping into this place of legality. He says, he says that that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. It is these fruits of the Spirit that should mark our lives. I love the way Bishop James King, our Episcopal leader in the South Georgia Conference, returns time and again to this passage. I know it's got to be his favorite. I'll hear him preaching, and he will say, he will say, come on, go with me to 522 Galatians Avenue. (laughs) And you know where we're headed when he says that. The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then there is this interesting phrase, there is no law against such things. What in the world does that mean? I like the way Eugene Peterson interprets, paraphrases that passage. Eugene Peterson in that, that interpretation that he entitles the message, the interpretation of the Bible, that paraphrase, he says, legalism 
is helpless in bringing this about. That's the way he interprets that phrase. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. And that is because the Holy Spirit is this wind that blows where it wishes to blow. Today, this is a calling for us to be awake, even anointed with this sense of personal holiness. What is it that brings us there? It is minds and bodies seeking after Christ, feeling the call of Christ, the arms of Christ that wrap around us and pull us close to him participating in that embrace. You remember the story of the prodigal son, don't you? The precious nature of the waiting father who goes out and meets this prodigal. The father would say, don't call him prodigal. Don't call him prodigal. Goes out to meet the son and welcomes him home. Even he wishes to embrace the elder son And yet, what is the older son's problem? The older son doesn't want to have anything to do with the prodigal. And at this point in the story, has not a wish to even be in the presence of the father. Robert Key is a distant cousin of mine. I don't know how far removed he is but he's far enough removed that he spells his last name differently than my mother spelled her maiden name both of which is key one is k-e-a and the other is k-e-y but every time I'm near him he says you know we're cousins don't you Robert Key this precious missionary spirit was telling me one day he was reflecting with me he said He said, Bill, he said, I remember back in the 1950s being in Baxley, Georgia, and there was a community tent revival. The churches in the area were invited to come and to participate. The tent was set up, one of these large circus-style tents was set up on an empty lot in Baxley. And he said, it was quite an event as we came to participate. He said, but, he said, he said, one of the things that was going on that week is that it was a torrent of rain all week long. It didn't keep people from turning out. And he said, the fascinating thing was, he said, I remember particularly, he said, as the water streamed underneath that tent and through that town, turned everything into mud, even the soil that was there at the front of that tent. He said, I can still remember, particularly the men in town who were touched by the message that was being given. And they came and knelt down in that mud. He said, Bill, it was incredible. He said, the the vivid image of that will always be with me. They knelt down in that mud as if this offering of themselves was a realization of who they were and where they needed to be. 
is it that you come to God? How is it that you invite others to God? It is in the realization that all of us are sinners in need of God's grace. John Wesley said, we make all of it so complicated, so complicated, it's not so complicated. It's like a house, he said. He used this as an illustration. He said, it's like a house. He said, there's this front porch. He said, you get on the porch and that repentance thing begins to take place. And he said, you are urged toward the door by the by the justifying grace that when you get to the door, that's that justification taking place to put you right with Christ. But it's not all about that door. It's about entering the house. It's about entering the house and allowing God to help you discover, help us all discover what it means to live and breathe and grow within the house in the grace of God, that sanctifying grace. If John Wesley were here today, I would have to ask him a question. I would say to him, John, you talk about this porch. Let's go with that just a little bit further because I know that that is about the grace of God and he would interrupt me and he would say, yes, the prevenient grace of God. And I would say to him, how big is that porch? You see, it is my feeling that Methodists, as well as many others, have drawn the porch so small that that in and of itself distances the church from other people. Oh, the damage we do by drawing the porch so small. I believe John Wesley would admit to us that the provenient grace of God reaches to every corner of this planet to every corner of every person's heart. And I would say to him, and so this is a large porch, and he might say to me, oh, this porch is larger than any porch you can imagine. This porch includes everybody. Now, how is it that you could allow or I could allow anybody to believe that God doesn't care for them. What damage we do. With all of our great plans, do we get busy with just creating the church as this empty institution? Or are we busy about the grace of God? Enter in the door. Better yet, into the house of God. And then get back out on the porch and call to those who may not understand yet the beauty, the miracle of God's grace at work in our lives. You remember Paul continued on this theme over in Philippians When he talked about this, he said, think about it. Just think about it. Think about these things. If you don't think about it, you may spend your life on the porch. Think about it. You'll be amazed at what the grace of God can do to make even our lives holy 
truly holy. As we